Amen. Well, church family, I believe the Lord is already among us today. The Spirit has moved. I felt Him, and I, I tell you, I don't know what He was doing out there, but at the altar, the Lord was moving. Um, it was awesome. So, uh, thank you for um, being a part of worship today, and um, we are continuing on in our uh, text from uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we have a lot to get to, so you're going to need to listen fast today, okay? I'm just going to put that on you, okay? Listen quickly. Um, as, we, uh, as we look at the, the Gospel of Mark, we have been seeing what it means for the kingdom of God to be here. God's kingdom is, is, is at hand. It's, it's here, so uh, get ready. Uh, change your hearts and lives, Mark says in chapter 1. Um, but we're moving on, and, and today we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 3, and it's an interesting passage because Jesus has a secret, Jesus has a secret, and we already had kids' time today, and we had things planned for alabaster, but had we not had that, I would have sat here and said, kids, do you have any secrets? And then we would have passed the microphone. No, I would never do that. Are you kidding me? No, never would I do that. That's, that's dangerous. I have a brother who, who, he doesn't have kids of his own, so he's an uncle, and when we all get together, my brother will go to each of his nieces and nephews, our kids, and he will say, okay. Now tell me what mommy and daddy told you not to say today. That, that will be, that's what he likes to do. So anyway, we, Jesus now has a secret in this passage. And so let's, let's find out what Jesus' secret is. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7. Jesus left with his disciples and went to the lake. A large crowd followed him because they had heard what he was doing. They were from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, in the area surrounding Tyre and Sidon. Jesus told his disciples to get a small boat ready for him so the crowd wouldn't crush him. He had healed so many people that everyone who was sick pushed forward so that they could touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down at his feet and shouted, You are God's son! But he strictly ordered them not to reveal who he was. Jesus went, on, went up on a mountain and called those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 and called them apostles. He appointed them to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to throw out demons. He appointed 12, Peter, a name he gave Simon, James and John, Zebedee's sons, who he nicknamed Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Alphaeus' son, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed Jesus. The word of the Lord this morning, and just as a side note, I want to point out, did you catch the nicknames as, as Mark was listing the apostles, the, the 12 apostles or 12 disciples? Some had nicknames, and I will tell you, if Jesus ever gave me a nickname, and it was Sons of Thunder, if he came to say, you are Sons of Thunder, oh man, let me tell you. I would change my business card. I would update my social media. I would, I'd, I'd head to the tattoo parlor. Are you kidding me? Sons of Thunder. I'm getting a new social security card, and it just says thun, Sons of Thunder. And I'm, I'm just, I, actually, that's Pastor Sons of Thunder to you. It is, oh, I would be insufferable if he gave me a nickname like that. Oh, my goodness. And then Simon, his name is Simon, but Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter. And Peter means the rock. The ro- Are you kidding me? What a great name. What a, I, I am the rock. You know how some people take their Bibles and they get their name printed on their Bibles, you know? Oh, my goodness. I, in gold letters, you know, 
on my body. Can you smell what the rock is cooking, right? You know, I am the rock. And you know why I'm the rock? Jesus said I'm the rock, you know, pastor of the rock. No. I'm Pastor Billy. Um, <laughs> and I will say all this. That had nothing to do with any other part of the sermon here or the message. I just wanted to point out, Jesus gives some really cool nicknames. And, it's, you know, the other guys, it's like, I'm just Bartholomew? Is that, is that that's what we're doing here? I just, you know, I'm just Thomas, I guess. No, it, it, that's fine. But to go from, you know, James and John, which are fine names, but they're common names. Then sons of thunder, man. And James and Zebedee must have been like, yeah, that makes me thunder. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. But Jesus' popularity and his interest is growing here, and people are coming from all over, it says in verse 8. And I, I want us to consider this morning the reason. What's the reason to follow? Why are people following Jesus at this point? And they are following not because of what he was teaching but it's because of what he was doing, is what it says in verse 7. And you've heard this before, I'm sure. I'm not making up this statement, but I think it's a very important one here. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I would say to us today, it's a lesson for us today, show people Jesus before you teach people Jesus or teach people about Jesus. If you want someone to accept Jesus as their Savior or to come to know Jesus in a special way just as you have, if you want your son or your daughter, your relative, your friend, your coworker, classmate, neighbor, whoever you want to see come to receive Jesus in their life, show them Jesus before you try to teach them Jesus. Does that make sense? Don't start by telling them what they can do or what they can't do. Start by showing them what Jesus has done in your own life. And what a follower of Jesus does. Show Jesus before you teach Jesus. A farmer has to prepare the soil before a seed is planted. A parent should probably cultivate a relationship with their child before attempting discipline. A general has to prove himself as a trusted leader before his troops will follow him into battle. And so, too, I think we should show people Jesus before we try to teach them about Jesus. Show them how much you care before you show them how much you know. A large crowd was following Jesus because they had heard what he was doing. Because they had heard what he was doing. And there's a bit of desperation. It's not just the reason to follow. There's the desperation to follow that we see some, and imagine just, and I know I've got some pandemic-tinted glasses as, as, I, as I read into this. Imagine the pandemic nightmare that is verse 10. Did you catch that? Everyone who was sick pushed forward so they could touch him. Does that sound terrible? I, you can tell I'm wearing glasses today, okay? And I don't normally wear glasses. I prefer contacts. If I do this, you guys are just a blur now, you know? But I normally wear contacts. But on Wednesday morning, I woke up with my left eye swollen shut, okay? And I didn't feel sick. I, I was fine. I wasn't sick. But my left eye was swollen shut, and I had no indication that this was going to happen. And I was like, today I'm a pirate, I guess. And so this is my day now. And so I was like, I better get this checked out. So I had to, you know, pry my eye open, and it was, ugh, it was gross. So I find myself then sitting in a waiting room. And I'm surrounded by others, 
And in my head, it's like, oh, the sick and the diseased are all around me, you know, and never mind that I'm also then sick and diseased and contagious, but it's, ugh, who's that guy coughing, or you know, what, what do they have, or what's that skin rash, or, or whatever it is. Now, imagine chapter, or verse 10, you know, skin disease guy is rupping up against stomach virus guy, and, you know, stomach virus guy is sweating all over the double pneumonia guy, and Gets coughing, and then there's that ear infection, and it's, and, and, and the broken leg guy is like, Ugh, you know, just everybody crowding around. And it's funny because Jesus is like, I need a boat. Give me a boat. I, I, I need some space here. Give me a boat. I'll just, we'll do some teaching here. You know, but in all seriousness, the ones who were in need the most are the ones who sought out Jesus. And this kind of goes back to, when Jesus was hanging out with a wrong type of person, you know, back in chapter 2, and Jesus says, I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's the same thing here. When, boy, when you are sick, you will do just about anything to regain your health, right? And that's, that's why medicine works when you see on TV the side effects. Is that horrifying to listen to a TV commercial with side effects of prescription drugs? But we'll take them because I need relief from what I'm feeling, you know? Or when you're in pain, you will do just about anything for relief from the pain. And even it goes on to say, when you're demon-possessed, you will do just about anything to gain freedom. And we read back into this, and we don't, sometimes we don't know what to do with the demon-possessed language in the Bible. If you don't think there are demons today, oh, you're not paying attention. Because, yes, there are demons today. There are temptations. There is evil in this world that wants to draw you in, even just a little bit, even one step at a time, one drink at a time, one hit at a time. Eventually, you come to a point where you become desperate for that freedom you once had because there are things that will want to enslave you, want to take you captive in this world. There are demons in this world. And freedom from demons, you'll do anything to get away from that. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus alone can bring healing, can bring relief, and can bring freedom. So, of course, there's a crowd. I'd say if this world knew Jesus as the Bible presents Jesus, every single person in town would be knocking down the door of their, their nearest church, just trying to get in. There's, there's an older son, about 30 years old now, but Jesus is the answer for the world today. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. Do you know this? Same thing. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. It's no wonder crowds are gathering. No wonder the sick who desperately want relief, want healing, are gathering around. It's just starting. It's just getting big. And those who need Jesus the most are drawn in to Jesus the most. I love that. But then that brings us to the secret. The secret that Jesus said. Did you see this? The secret that if we say, if Jesus is the answer, he is. But it, we'll say it this way. If Jesus is the answer, what he does next then is so confusing. Is it doesn't make sense. 
If Jesus is the answer, you think the response should be, let everybody know. Shout it from the rooftops. Everybody needs to know, write the songs, Jesus is the answer. But that is not what happens. Look at verses 11 and 12. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down at his feet and shouted, You are God's son. But he strictly ordered them not to reveal who he was. Well, that's odd. What is Jesus doing here? Why does he want to keep this a secret? The evil spirits are not wrong. It's not like they're lying. They're they're correct. You are God's son. That's what they're saying. You are God's son. That's right. He is. And if you'll notice, and if you've been paying attention along the way, we haven't really addressed it, but this is not the first time this has happened, and it will not be the last in Mark's gospel. Three times in chapter 1, there is a healing or a demon-possessed person who is freed, and Jesus three times says, "Mm, mm, keep this a secret. Don't go tell anybody. Don't do it. Sometimes he says it to a demon. Sometimes he says it to a person. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody this. And it happens again a few times later on in Mark's gospel. We'll come to it later. Jesus keeps the fact that he is God's son, that he's the Messiah. He, he wants to keep that a secret. And I'll be honest with you, there are many theologians who are way smarter than I am who disagree about what's going on here. It's named. It's called the Messianic Secret. And the reason that Jesus wants to keep this a secret is not clearly revealed in the Gospels. But, and so there's some room for interpretation and some different theories. And, and let, me, let me throw some out at you. Some say, one theory, this is crowd control. It's already getting too crowded. Too many people are already coming in, and Jesus doesn't want to just sit and wait for others to come in, and whoever has access or funds or the ability to come, they're the ones who get Jesus, and anyone else who can't make that journey, you know, they don't get Jesus. So, so there's a lot of crowds. And even after telling demons and healed people just to keep quiet, the secret still leaks out here and there. And so as these massive crowds come from all over the place, just it, it become a logistical disaster. I mean, roads are crowded. Infrastructure crumbles. People would leave their jobs, their family, their responsibilities. Society around this region would fall apart because they just want to come see Jesus all the time. So Jesus wanted to limit the damage of some fame and popularity. That's one theory, crowd control. Another was maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe it it wasn't right timing right now to say it because there's more to be done, some things to be taught. And, you know, he didn't want a word to spread because it's not yet time for him to be crowned king. There's some other things that have to happen, so maybe it's a timing thing. Or maybe he didn't want rumor and speculation to get ahead of him. Jesus didn't come to just heal people in the neighborhood, a few hundred people here, maybe up to a few thousand people who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. He came to save every single human who has ever lived. And in order to do that, it's not just a couple dozen miracles every single day, but It requires some teaching and some parables and some preaching and instruction and gathering disciples and cultivating some disciples and followers and ushering in this entirely new kingdom of God. So it's not just about healing. There's a larger picture here, a larger message. And so these actions that Jesus is doing, and if there's rumor and speculation getting out ahead of him, that's all he would become known for is there's this great healer, but he wanted people to experience Jesus' miracles and 
teachings and kingdom of God language rather than just hearing about a few miracles. So maybe it's just getting ahead of some rumor and speculation so people can experience Jesus for themselves. And along those lines, people, some people had some bad ideas, some wrong ideas of what it meant to be the Messiah, what it meant to be God's son. Some people thought the Messiah would return and lead an armed rebellion against the Roman Empire and go maybe march on Rome or overthrow Rome or something like that. And so there was a possibility maybe people would show up with weapons and you know, battle plans and Jesus lead us into war here. And obviously that's not what Jesus came to do. He's not here to be a military warrior. So there's a few reasons right there, a lot of theories, and I, I confess there's probably some truth to each one of those. There could be many reasons, a combination of reasons here. But here's one more theory I'd like us to consider today, is that perhaps, and I, I think Mark hits on this, maybe Jesus doesn't want demons to be his spokesman. Maybe, maybe it's time for demons to, to be quiet, even when they're speaking the truth. There's a, this is a message that is so important, so precious, so exciting, and, and so life-giving. That type of message is not meant to be delivered by an, an agent of evil. Even if they're speaking the truth, demons don't get the privilege of proclaiming the good news. So even when they're right, Jesus tells the demons, hey, shut your mouth. And if you're going to align yourself with the darkness, you do not get to speak about the light. And I have a reason why I think this is the theory and why I think Mark points us to the theory is look what Mark does next. Mark decides this is the right time right here, right after this story. Now is when Mark's going to put in, this is what I'm going to tell you about Jesus picking his 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. And there were many more followers than just these 12, but these were the inner circle 12. These were the ones who were, who were named and what were the big 12, the big 12 right here, the 12, what were they supposed to do? Jesus gives some responsibilities in verses 14 and 15. To be with Jesus, to preach, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to throw out demons. Be with Jesus, preach, have authority to throw out demons. Mark, he's doing this on purpose, I think. Mark sets it up this way. Demons, shut up. You do not get the privilege to proclaim Jesus. Disciples, speak up. You get to be with Jesus. You get to preach Jesus. You get to tell those demons to shut up. And so what is? What we have here, we have to ask ourselves, what's the difference between demons and disciples? And we think that's obvious, right? But actually what they're saying is kind of the same thing. They're both speaking truth, Right? Both demons and disciples have the same truth. Jesus is the Son of God. But here's the difference. Demons are not with Jesus. Disciples, verse 14, get to be with Jesus. And there are 12 disciples here again. There are many more, at least hundreds by this point. And today, think about how many followers of Jesus are there today. Billions. Billions. And the question before us today is, does that include you? Disciple or demon? A demon 
knows about Jesus, has the head knowledge. And when a demon speaks about Jesus, there's some truth there. We see that in Scripture. But a disciple spends time with Jesus, gets to be with Jesus. And so Jesus says, even even though the truth is spoken from both camps, he says to the demon, shut up. He says to the disciple, it's time to speak up. Your testimony, your right to speak about Jesus does not come from your knowledge about Jesus. That's demon stuff. They know. Your testimony comes from being with Jesus, like the disciples. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, church family, be with Jesus. And what does it look like to be with Jesus? We spend time in his word. We spend time in prayer. Man, I I wish we treated prayer with more of the respect that it deserves because prayer is a direct connection with God. Do you know, you don't have to come meet with me to find out what God is saying. Anytime you want to, I'd be glad to meet with you. I meet with people all the time. I, I love doing that. But I am not the middleman between you and God. You can talk to God anytime you want to. Wow. Be with God. Being at church today, being a part of his body of believers, and I, can I push it even more? We need to, I've slacked on this. We need to do this more. Being a member of God's church, you are being with Jesus. It's important. Can I use an example from the banking industry? It's said that bank tellers can identify a counterfeit bill with greater than 99% accuracy. That bank tellers can spot a fake from a mile away. Instantaneously, they know it. And the interesting thing is the bank teller can identify the fake not because there is a lot of training in what counterfeit bills look like, not, not because they sit through classes or videos or seminars, maybe there's some of that, but it, it's not because they are up on the latest printing strategies and washing and ink and all that. It's not because they study the tactics of counterfeiters. No, bank tellers can identify a counterfeit bill immediately because they spend every single day with the real thing, handling money. Real money, every single day, every single hour. And when you're with it all the time, the moment a fake one tries to slip in, wait a minute, something wrong with this one. What if we, as the people of God, were so close to Jesus, so immersed in his word, so just enveloped in his arms and in his love, that the moment something not of God comes around, we could say, wait a minute. I could sniff that out from a mile away. That's not kingdom stuff right there. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the way you do it. There's another story I'd like to share is a guy by the name of Chris Kirk. During this time of year, you know I'm a sports guy, during this time of year my attention turns to golf. Okay, football's over, baseball's just getting started, I'm super excited about baseball, it's just getting started, but right now golf, and, and golf gets, gets going here, and I, I know golf 
is exciting for some and a great way to take a nap for others. I, I get that. But it, I, I was a former sports writer, you know, several years ago now, and uh, I covered golf in, in Augusta, Georgia, among other things. And so I got to, you know, attend the Masters, and it's the greatest golf tournament of all time. And, um, but but I'm, I'm paying attention to golf now, and they're on what's called the Florida Swing. All, all the golf tournaments are in Florida right now because, I mean, where else would you have it in February, you know, in March? Uh, you need it where it's warm, so they're in Florida. Well, a, a guy by the name of Chris Kirk, he was an up-and-coming golfer, say, eight years ago. In fact, by 2015, he had four wins. You know, for a, for a new guy, for a rookie, it's pretty good. He had won four times on the PGA Tour. But then all of a sudden, it's, it's almost like his, his, his game just fell off a cliff. He, he was doing terribly. And got to a point later on where he missed four cuts in a row, which is you don't even get to make it to the weekend to compete. He was just that bad. And so he announced he was stepping away. And all that promise and all that excitement of what his career might be, it, it, it seemed like it was over. That was it. It wasn't going to happen anymore. But he came back, worked and worked and worked and worked on himself, and he came back, and this year, in fact, it was last weekend at what's called the Honda Classic in Florida, Chris Kirk found himself leading by one stroke with one hole to play. He was up by one with one hole to play. And he's approaching this, this, this hole, and, and it's all he has to do is par, and the guy playing with him, he, may, he might birdie, but, but probably not. Just, just, just this one last hole. He's up by one stroke, this one last hole. And Chris Kirk hit the ball in the water. And it actually, if you've ever seen golf tournaments, they, they have, the, everything's beautiful on a golf course, you know, but they have this water out to the side, and they have a platform that's maybe an inch or two under the water, and then they put a car, and it's the Honda Classic, so it was a Honda, and they put a Honda out there, and it looks like it's like on top of the water, like it's Jesus' car or something, you know, and it's just out there on top of the water. His ball almost hit the car. It was, it was that, that's how bad it was. And so this guy, he had made this, this great comeback, and here he was, he hit it in the water. Now he managed, somehow, to just bogey, and his partner, who was in second place, parred the hole, and what that meant was they tied. They tied. And the way they handle uh, extra overtime or whatever they would call it in golf is they play one more hole. And it varies from tournament, but for this tournament, they're just going to play the 18th hole over again. The hole he just hit it in the water, he's got to now play that again with the tournament on the line. And so he hits his drive out, and he, he's, he's, he's there. His second shot, the one he had hit in the water one hole before, hits it to within three feet of the cup. I mean, it was just the perfect shot. And he nails the putt. Birdie and Chris Kirk wins it. And it was so exciting. And I just, golf is such a, what a comeback. And for him to mess up like he did, hit it in the water, and then get a do-over. He got a do-over on 18. How cool was that? But here I want to read to you what he said. Standing on the green as a champion again after it was over, it was like 2,800 days since he had won a tournament. He thought he would never win again. But here he is. He had come back. He says, here's what he said. Listen to these words. I owe every, absolutely everything that I have today to my sobriety. Every good thing that I have in my life is because I got sober four years ago. 
And I wouldn't have, it, have any of it without that. For that to have happened and worked out for me, obviously there were some decisions that I made, but mostly, he said, the grace of God and a lot of other people that really helped me along the way. Here's what happened. That Chris Kirk was this great up-and-coming golfer, but he had a secret life. And his secret was beer. He was drinking beer all the time. And what happened is his drink beer, he gained weight. And so he cut out beer and switched to whiskey. (laughs) And it helped with his physical body, but it did not help with his alcoholism. And what it cost him is he had to leave the game. He checked himself into rehab. And this year, he came back, and last week, there he is again. And when you have overcome alcoholism, when you are, and and he listed it was 400-something days of sobriety that he had, well, when you hit the ball in the water on 18, you've already overcome the worst of your life. You can overcome a ball in the water. And he didn't give up. It would not stop. And here he was. And, and here's the reason. I, it's a great story, I know. It's, what, what a comeback story, how cool that is. And he's, he, I don't know if he's in contention today. He's playing today. He's, he had a great first round. But they're playing in the Arnold Palmer uh, uh, tournament now. But his story has such power and influence today. And he, he, he said even later this week, he's heard from so many people who have reached out to him and say, hey, I've decided to get serious about my sobriety now. I've decided that I want to make a change in my life based on his testimony, what, what he did. And his story had such power and influence, not because Chris Kirk was well-informed of the facts and the figures and the statistics of alcoholism, or because he knew what it did to the body and the physiology and all, and all that stuff, and he he learned about the anatomy of, of what happens to your body when you drink too much alcohol. It's not because he had the knowledge, but his story had such power and influence because he experienced the path of deliverance and God's grace in his life to overcome something that had stolen his freedom. That is the difference between demon and disciple. That is the difference between knowing God and being with God. It's the call to be a disciple, to experience God's forgiveness and grace, and share your experience with the world. So today, church family, I have a sending message for you. That if you need to deal with some stuff today, deal with it. And altars are open. You can come see me. I'd love to talk. Let's deal with some stuff if you need to deal with some stuff. But the call for us today is to be willing to be disciples who are with Jesus. And because of our experience with Jesus, we're able to share Jesus. Not because of our knowledge of Jesus. Now, yeah, get, get the knowledge. Understand, learn it. But not because of our knowledge, because of our experience. And I have to ask you, what has Jesus done in your life? We could be here all day long if I pass the microphone around. What has Jesus done in your life? And that story may not yet be complete. Chris Kerr's story is not yet complete. Every single day is a struggle for him. He, he even said that as he goes, when, when he's on the road now, 
when, when he's off at tournaments and his, his family's at home, he's got young kids and they're in school, he goes off, he makes sure he's not in a hotel room alone because that's when his biggest weakness is. And if he's in his hotel room alone, that temptation is far too strong. So he takes step, and it is not he's just fine now. Every single day is temptation, and every single day he has to win that battle. But I can tell you, there is no temptation, whether we're talking about alcoholism today or anything else. Whatever temptation there is, there is no temptation more powerful than the power of Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? We need to know that and not just know that. We need to experience that. And so here is the sending message for today. I want you to go find two people this week and tell them what the Lord has done for you in your life. That may be something you do. Maybe it hasn't been something you've done in a a while. Maybe you've never done that before. Find two people. What has Jesus Christ done in your life? What was life like before Jesus? What is life like after Jesus came into your life? And again, your story may not be done. It's okay. I want you to share that with some. It might be a close friend. It might be a perfect stranger. I'd be willing to hear it. I'd love to hear those stories. I want to hear, what is it that God has done in your life? And some of you are so excited and raring to go, and some of you, you introverts, have stopped breathing right now. So What? I got to do that? What? Let me give you not an out, but let me give you one more option if that's just terrifying. I want you to, but you have to do this. I want you to sit down with pen and paper, or if, if you're a phone person, you can open up like notes on your phone. I want you to write out your story. Write out what God has done for your life. And you may come to a point where you just need to stop and write to be continued because he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. You know? That's okay. We are works in progress. But can you do one of the two? If you're raring to go and if you tell people, or if you need, I just want you to get it out of your own head and get it on paper, what has God done for you? And then if you are dare so brave, share it. Share it. I'd love to hear it. You may have closer friends. You may have someone in your life who needs to know. And you can come to them and say, I just need you to know what God, I don't know what he's doing in your life. Here's what he's done in my life. Let me put this out there. You start with these words, Jesus has saved me from what? What? Or my life was like this before Jesus, and now after Jesus, my life was like this. It's a homework assignment. I want you to do that, okay? In just a moment, I'm going to pray for you. And I want us to consider um, the call of a disciple. The threefold call of the disciple to be with Jesus, to be sent out to preach, and the last one, to have authority to throw out demons. Church family, we have to speak of sin when it needs to be spoken about. Confront sin. Get sin out of our lives. And remember, it's not, I'm going to show up to a perfect stranger and with my knowledge, I'm going to tell them all, how they should live their lives. But it is, here's what Jesus has done in my life, and here's what life looks like freed from the burden of sin. That's powerful. So bow your heads with me. Let, Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we come to you, and I know your spirit is with us today. And I know you have moved even in this week. 
And Father, as, as we read of your word and we, we read about this secret and we, we, we wrestle with this, trying to figure out what exactly is going on here, Lord, I take comfort in the fact that you not only have called disciples, many in, even in this room, but you not only have called your disciples, but you have assigned responsibilities and you have equipped your disciples to be your spokespeople to share your work and your message and your forgiveness and your grace in this world, Lord. So I pray as we take this, and even this week as we write out our own story, as we share our own um, uh, need for forgiveness and deliverance, Lord, and then, and then we take that and we share that with others, Lord, we put the burden on you and your spirit to then bring about change, bring about conviction, bring about repentance, Lord. I, I don't know what's going to happen as we share these stories, Lord. That's up to you. But I pray that you would give the strength and the courage to each disciple in here today, Lord, to not just speak about you or speak the, of the knowledge we have of you. Demons can do that. But I pray that we can speak of the experience that we have with you the life-changing transformation that we receive when your presence and your grace comes into our life, Lord. And for those who, who have not experienced that yet, Lord, now's the time. May your spirit fall on them. May you deliver them from evil. May you remove not just sin, but maybe even temptation if you are so graciously able to do so. Watch over your people, Lord. Allow us to be the Disciples who will be with you, who will preach and even speak against sin and demons, Lord, rather than just those who just speak about the knowledge of God. Be with us today. Give us your, your words, Lord, and help us as we develop our story in you. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.